Yeah, I like that. Oh man, that's good. That's fucking. That's killer. Killer, bro. Yeah. What is that? Well, love it. Really good song that has a lot to do with today's episode. Oh, I see what you're doing, man. Transporting us musically. I like it. And it is actually the 1942 hit "I Lost My Sugar in Salt Lake City" by Johnny Mercer. I like it. I like it. Uh, bro, have you seen this, man? There are classified documents being found in, like, every top politician's houses. Like, all five of Biden's mansions paid for by our tax dollars and all three of Pence's plantations. Not to mention your main man, Trump. What? Even Trump, dude? My Brago from Mar-a-Lago, man. That's, that's <laughs> nice. crazy. <laughs> yeah, dude. These by uh, these freaking classified documents are being found everywhere. It's just all over the news. They're finding them in everyone's houses. Like, why do you guys have all these classified documents? So there's some or weird just, shit going on. Or just like change the classification so they're not classified. They're, these are the kind yeah. of things that people can just leave around. You know, like how yeah. important how important are they? You know, like do we have to classify everything? You know, like, I don't I don't know. I don't know much got... about the government, dude. So you know, what can I say? What can you say about the government, Scott? Give us your top opinion on the government. <laughs> my, my BuzzFeed uh, headline of the government. <laughs> government gets richer. People get poorer. Ding Read ding. all about it. Extra, extra. Read all <laughs> about it. Yeah, see? Government corruption, see? <laughs> Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the Paranautica Podcast. We are so pleased to have you join us for today's episode. It is going to be a bit of a mashup of various freak accidents, and I think we will have three cases to give you today. And this format is one that we will probably use often in our podcast from here on out because it's a pretty fun format. Yeah, man, we got to switch it up a bit, you know, keep things fresh, keep it different, keep it real, keep it real exciting. Oh, you like that? And I also do. our attention span seems to be getting shorter and shorter as we're absorbing so much information all around us, which, I mean, everybody's got that problem, right? No, oh, yeah. From oh, our TVs to our cell phones to our Alexas, watches, iPads, computers, and even the, even the mailman, dog. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, he seems to know quite a bit about useless information, which actually he was telling me a lot about this morning, and he can talk. Yeah? That's crazy, man. You know, I've never actually seen the mailman. Really? I see your mailman pretty much all the time. <laughs> he is literally hanging out around your neighborhood, and whenever I'm heading over to your place, I see him checking the mailboxes, and then off he goes to the next one. I mean, do you ever actually see him putting mail into the boxes, though? Well, no, not exactly. But, you know, when he sees me, he always quits whatever it is that he's doing, and he rushes over, and he just starts talking my ear off. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that's actually the mailman, man. <laughs> you sure? Yeah, I'm pretty sure, dude. I don't think that's the I mailman. I mean, he sure said he was. Oh, okay. Well, what's he wearing? Uh, funny you should ask that, actually. You know, uh, he's not actually dressed as a mailman, as you might suspect a mailman would be dressed <laughs> like. But, and I found, that, I found that to be pretty weird, too. But, you know, it's 2023 now. You know, things are different. Things are different. Yeah, I suppose. You know, you can't, uh, you can't judge a mailman by the clothes, by the United States postal outfit that he's not wearing. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you probably shouldn't be talking to him, dog. And you should probably just tell him to get the hell out of my neighborhood, actually. But he seems like a really nice guy, and he's really good at talking. Right on. 
Okay. Well, anyways, what are we presenting today, my friend? Well, Scott, let me ask you a question. Fire away, sir. Let me ask you this. Okay. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Have you ever been to Arches National Park, Utah? Um, uh, no, actually, I have not been to Arches, but I would love to go to Arches because every time I see pictures of Arches, I get super jelly. Yeah, well, it's a really stunning place, actually. I've never actually been to the park itself, but I uh, drove through Moab, which is a pretty cool place in itself. And it's also the subject of that incredible song that we are blessed to have for the intro of today's show. Ah, yeah, ah. it's full circle moment. I like it. The park itself is like four miles north of Moab. I've never, I never saw any arches when I went through there. I saw a lot of desert, a lot of mesas, rock. I saw a lot of rock and sand and shrubbery, but I never saw any arches. But would you like to hear some facts about Arches National Park? Oh, you know it. All right. There are more than 2,000 natural sandstone arches within the boundary of the park. And the park contains the most natural arches within a specified area of land in the entire world. Uh -huh. Arches National Park covers about 119 square miles of ever-changing and extremely unique landscape. Originally established as a national monument by the National Park Service on April 12, 1929, by the great engineer himself, that's right, Herbert Clark Hoover, the 31st President of the United States, and an orphan turned self-made millionaire before that. Which is interesting. I never knew that. I actually found that out. He was an yeah, orphan at I age learned, nine. Learned something new every day. Yeah, that guy was insane then. Turned his life around. Self-made millionaire. Yeah, that's incredible. The area became a national park on November 12th, 1971 by your number two man after the Trumpster, <laughs> Tricky Dick Nixon. Oh man, both of my heroes in the same episode. <laughs> I am not a crook. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. I love it. And today, the park receives up to 2 million visitors each year. Around 300 million years ago, the area was covered by salt water, and as the water evaporated, it deposited a thick layer of salt that is thousands of feet thick Whoa. in some areas. Over time, and according to Christian creationists, this has allowed for roughly 6,000 years for various sediments and other materials to compress and form into rock layers. But as we know, because the most brilliant minds in the subject that we call science have always been searching for and finding new ways to calculate the age of this earth, specifically the age of various rock samples, and currently they are using what is called radiometric dating, which is a method of dating materials such as rocks that compares the amount of naturally occurring isotopes of an atom and its decaying rates. It's also called radioactive dating and gives you rock-solid results. Oh, rock-solid results with radio... Oh, we're just going to clip that out. I... <laughs> Fuck that up so you can just clip me out there. I'll clip that out. <laughs> Over time, these layers of rock are slowly eroded away by acidic rains, which create what's called carbonic acid. And this dissolves the porous sandstone. And over millions of years, these massive formations are created. While there are many other cool geological surprises in Arches National Park, the more popular formations are, of course, the arches themselves, hence the name. But people don't just look at these arches and admire their thick, smooth, hard elegance. No. <laughs> people attach ropes to these arches at the very apex of the arches themselves, at the very top, and then tie the other end to their waist, 
you know, straight rope to waist. Very oh, primitive. yeah. Now, they're using proper gear, of course. And once harnessed in, they run down the arch a bit and then leap off, swinging themselves down and through the arch. It's actually pretty insane, but pretty damn cool as well. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit too too many uh, question marks, I think. You know, just one one access point, not properly yeah. in there. And, well, yeah, you're going to be swinging for a long time, my friend. Swinging into the afterlife. The practice is illegal. But this does not stop thrill-seekers who have a penchant to test death who stands in the distance, staring from afar. I mean, Jesus Christ, seriously, you have the one opportunity on this earth, and this is what you're doing? This is what you're deciding to do with your life? <sighs> Let's get this over with. Clarissa Explains It All reruns are coming on in about 12 minutes. Death loves Clarissa Explains It All. <laughs> yeah, apparently, man, The Undertaker... He's got his flicks, too. Yeah, what else are you going to do when you're sitting down around there waiting for souls? You know? That is true, man. Just Clarissa explains it all reruns. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. And in March of 2015, 22-year-old Kyle Lee Stocking was about to take such a leap. He took his measurements, tied himself into his ropes, ran down the thick, smooth, hard, rough surface of the arch and leapt, arms stretched out, back arched and gravity did what gravity does it always does coop unfortunately for kyle he put too much slack in the rope and he plummeted straight into the 300 million year old sandstone below <sighs> i mean what's the point i need a new job death does need a new job must be really boring standing around looking from afar waiting for people to die especially if it's the same thing time after time he probably checks yeah. like arches like two or three times a day just like comes back like you know it's we got another one due in 15 minutes oh, someone's lining <laughs> up better head uh, yeah here's another one <laughs> yeah it's a busy dude it's just a hot spot you know but statistically speaking deaths aren't very common in this park not like in the grand canyon where as of february 8th 2022 there were 134 deaths following that is Yosemite with 126 deaths, and at number three, the Great Smoky Mountains with 92 deaths. Arches National Park is said to be ranked the 31st most dangerous park, according to ABC News. Well, that makes sense, as Herbert Hoover was the 31st most dangerous president. Didn't he tell the American people that the economy was doing the best it ever had right as the Great Depression made its appearance or something like that? He assured the citizens that the economy was was still going really strong in the late nineteen in late nineteen twenty nine, and then as we know, the stock market crashed, and then what we know as Black Tuesday happened, and that all set the stage for what we call the Great Depression, and it's bound to happen again. But I think it'll be much much worse than the nineteen twenty nine depression. What was Black Tuesday again? I mean, wasn't that basically like the stock market was doing extremely well one minute, and then everyone thought it would keep getting better? But then it just started to randomly crash, and people began to panic and sell everything, and the banks just, like, didn't have enough money. Um, from what I recall, it's like the United States, you know, it was a very wealthy country at the time. Uh, market had risen to unprecedented levels. And this made people really excited to buy into the market. And oftentimes, you know, these people would borrow money to invest with um, from the banks, usually. Uh, this ultimately destroyed many people's lives. Uh, people kept buying and buying, though. Sell, sell, sell. Get on the horn. Get on the horn, Rigsby. Sell it up. Buy it up and then sell it up. Rigsby, no. 
and then all hell broke loose. The market started to sharply decline, and people, like I said, you know, they panicked, and everyone rushed to sell their stocks and dip out. But this only caused further decline in the market and more panic. And I'm pretty sure that there was a lot of insider trading going on there by the super wealthy. You know, the Carnegies with their steel, the Rockefellers, and the and the Mellons with their oil, the Duponts with their chemicals, the Fords with their vehicles, the Kennedys with their real estate, the Vanderbilts with their railroads, and the Rothschilds with their banking monopoly, among <laughs> so many others. But all the middle class and certainly the lower class, they were all basically wiped out. Yeah, man, that's really messed up. I mean, whole families were put out on the streets and they lost their homes and it was desperate times and people were sheltering wherever they could, even in sewer drains, man. I know. People were like literally starving to death. People even killed rats, dogs, cats, and their own pets just to have something to eat. Like that's how bad it was. Yeah, and there were food riots where people would just break into stores and take whatever they could get. I mean, I would. I mean, think about it, man. People are literally dying, you know? Yeah, it's either that or don't eat. I mean, farmers had to let their crops go to waste because there was no way they could sell them because people didn't have any money to buy them. And there was just like, I mean, you can't give, you know, 700 bushels of grain away on the street. There's just people couldn't do anything with it, it you know? It's yeah. Just, it just got wasted in the end. Yeah. You say with like the cattle, the livestock, um, they just had to kill thousands of animals because there's just no way to feed them. And, you know, otherwise the animals would just starve to death and which so many did. And that's why yeah. they started killing them off. Dude. And then right after that was the Dust Bowl, you know? Yeah, dude. The perfect storm for everything to go to shit, man. Just dust storms. The whole, like all of the good topsoil was just blown off of the prairie. So you, then you couldn't grow anything, even if you wanted. Just people were tough, dude. Like, all people those people tough. that made it out of that, like, they were so tough. You had to be so tough back then. You just had to be tough. My grandma, uh, she's since passed many years ago, but she recalls when that was going on, and she would tell stories of it. I was too young to really, like, care too much about it. But, like, hearing her stories, it's like, whoa, you lived through that. Holy crap, man. Yeah, I remember my school used to have grandparents come in and talk about, like, the depression like, my grandmother was a, a young girl during the Depression, and, like, she never put money in the bank, dude. My grandmother never put money in the bank. She'd always roll it up. She'd put it in socks. She'd put it in the mattress. She'd, you know, classic, just like what you hear, you know, but she had a mistrust that lasted the rest of her life. After she passed away, we found, like, bills in the most random places in her house. No we shit. Went through her. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. She's just storing bricks of cash in the walls and shit? Yeah, like 120 grand worth holy fuck yeah rolled up in socks underneath the mattress in pillows like wow yeah dude insane wow that's only stuff i'd hear on tv or you know some weird show that was our family real life homie that's cool man yeah my mom split it with her sister you know it's good to know that shit you know history repeats itself and people forget history yeah it's important history is important man yeah sadly there are just so many people most of our younger generations I just have no idea of what like what a, a telephone booth was or yeah. a driving theater. Yeah, people say history and they're like, "Oh, you mean uh, when Kim Kardashian was <laughs> was married to Kanye?" You know, like, oh, uh, yeah, that's history, dog. <laughs> yeah, it's all just entertainment stuff. That's what yeah, these younger yeah. generations care about. Totally. Well, back to the story. Arches National Park has only had six recorded deaths since records have been kept sometime after 1971. 
These deaths include two people who fell while hiking in the delicate arch area in 2019, and a third was injured. They happened to be parents who died, and the injured was their son. Delicate arch. Sounds like something my wife does from time to time. Is that right? Yeah, she does yoga. So, you know. Fantastic. It's not a sex thing. It's just a yoga thing. Sadly. And another woman presumably fell <laughs> or was struck from falling rock in the Devil's Garden area in 2022, which is also what I call my taint. <laughs> the Devil's <laughs> Garden. <laughs> Check out these statistics, bro. According to PSBR.law, they have uh, studiously compiled every available record of deaths occurring in the 423 park sites in the U.S. and I think around another 150 additional park-related areas. And between 2007 and 2018, a 12-year span, there were 2,727 documented deaths at a national park. Whoa. There were an estimated 3.5 billion visits to all of these parks in that time span. And the math on this comes out to nearly eight deaths happening per 10 million visits. Oh, man. Well, at least it's pretty, you have pretty good chances of having a decent day <laughs> while you're there. You know? Yeah, and it's like men make up about eighty-one uh, percent of deaths, while women make up the remaining nineteen. Oh man, that's uh, not very good statistics if you're uh, if you're dudely inclined, such as ourselves. Yeah, I might keep myself out of state parks and national parks. <laughs> now. Don't go to state parks. Chances <laughs> are way too high. And if you're a kid up to the age of 14, you are much safer than any other age group. And it doesn't really matter which age group you are in after age 14 because it's pretty much the same across the board. And can you guess the leading cause of death in national parks and recreation sites, Scott? Uh, I want to say animal attacks, but I'm sure it's something, you know, much more common like murder or suicide, unfortunately. All right, not too bad, not too bad. While both of those that you just said are on the list, neither are the leading cause of death. However, drowning is the leading cause what? of death. No with way. An estimated, with an estimated total of 668 per year. Whoa. And following that is vehicle crashes with 475 deaths. And after that, it slips and falls with 335 deaths. And after that... Uh, death by natural causes at 285 deaths. And then about 260 deaths are said to be caused by a suicide. And they say that only eight people are recorded to have been killed by animals within the park's boundary. That's crazy, dude. Yeah, I mean, the fact... What do they mean by natural causes? I mean, because... I. You know, like, for example, I feel like the one that you always hear, right, is the, the drunk guy in, in Yellowstone... Oh. Steps yeah. off the path. I mean, how many years have we heard this? Dude's drinking some beer. They practically oh, yeah. find a trail of beer cans, like, all the way to, you know, one of those hot springs or whatever. Dude falls in. They just, like, find the remains the following day because, you know, bro stepped yeah. off the path and didn't realize that it wasn't just, like, a normally temperatured pool, you know, like yeah. the bubbling green sulfuric smell. Just, like, didn't give it away or, like, little mud pots popping around. Around the outside, just ugh, it's a horrible way to die. But so would that be like a slip and fall, or is that what they mean by natural That's causes? Interesting you know? to think. Of, 
I think what they mean by natural causes is heart attack or stroke or something like that. 285 deaths. I know, right? That's so crazy. <laughs> oh, damn. I guess you're going out, like, seeing something beautiful, I suppose. But here's the thing, you know. If you're walking, just chilling, and what if a rock falls on you and kills you? Wouldn't that be a natural cause of death? I suppose. I mean, it's definitely not a suicide or a vehicle crash or a slip and fall. So, I mean, it would have to be a natural caused death. Maybe I mean, that's what know. they mean. You it's know? Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. But with eight <clears throat> people recorded to have been killed by animals, this means that one quarter of those victims were 19-year-old Julie Helgeson and 19-year-old Michelle Coons, who were both mauled by grizzly bears on the same night in Glacier National Park in 1967 in two separate attacks in two separate locations about 12 miles apart. Yeah, and you can actually watch the documentary about that on YouTube. It's called Night of the Grizzlies. Great movie. And Jack Olson also wrote a book about it, which I have not actually read. Neither have I. I have watched the documentary, and it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting story. You know, you got to watch out for them bears, bro. Chop for yeah, bears. bears. I mean, I've been, I've, I've chased bears. I've been next to bears. I've been lucky to not have been attacked. Um, yeah, I've only seen the, bears from afar, and that is close enough for me. See, in high school, we'd have you know kagers, and that this one we'd have them in the woods. And I think it was our junior year in high school, we had this kager in the woods. And when I showed up, uh, all these girls were like, "Oh my god, there's a bear over there!" And I'm like, "Oh, cool, a bear!" So I went over to it, and it was a chill little black bear chilling behind this log. And I walked up really close to it, like probably you know 15 feet from it, took some pictures, and everyone's like, "You're fucking crazy! Get away from there!" And I was like, "Yeah, you're right," but no one was attacked that night, and yeah, uh, yeah the bear was just chilling around the party, having a good time. I wanted to focus more on the death of a woman named Esther Nakahigo. All right, let's do it. Esther was 25 years old and originally from Uganda. She gained a sort of celebrity status when she worked on a fundraising project in order to help a hospital be built in an area of Uganda that was pretty much ignored by the government. She did so well for herself that she earned numerous international accolades, awards, and donations. She was granted a visa to come to the United States to continue her education and was participating in programs at the Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and also at the Watson Institute in Boulder, Colorado. While in Colorado, she met a man named Ludovic Michaud through a dating app. The two of them hit it off immediately and decided to go through a wedding ceremony at a courthouse. They intended to have a lavish wedding in Uganda when they would be able to travel again since COVID restrictions <coughs> were in place at the time. Esther and Ludovic decided to take a trip to the Arches National Park to sort of get away from all the madness that the cities bring. And statistically speaking, they chose a very safe place to visit. It was also a mini vacation to celebrate their new lives together and they could spend the time enjoying not only each other's company but enjoying talking about what the future held for them. They visited many of the main tourist attractions and of course took dozens upon dozens of photographs of themselves at these sites. As the day was winding down in the hot temperatures, they decided that it was time to head out of the park. They also thought that going to grab some delicious ice cream in a nearby town before calling it a night back at their hotel room would be a perfect ending to a most perfect day. So the pair got to their uh, sh silver Chevy, I think, Malibu. I think it was a Chevy Malibu. I couldn't tell exactly from the pictures, but they were driving out of the park and just about to drive past the exit gates. 
And I'm sure you're familiar with the gates that they put on either side of a road, each being about the length of a single lane. And so when they are both closed, they could be connected at the middle and then locked together. Right? Yep, yep. Yes, yeah, sir. So they have these gates at the entrance and exits of Arches National Park. And attached to these gates on either side are signs such as a stop sign and a road closed sign. So Ludovic was driving the car with Esther riding in the passenger seat. The newlyweds were as happy as could be after spending a magnificent day in one of the most beautiful areas of the United States. Life was amazing. These two had their shit together and a bountiful future ahead of them. As the couple were about to pass a set of these gates at the exit of the park, which were open to allow traffic through, an unexpected and freakish gust of wind picked up in that exact area at that exact time as they were passing through the gates. This gust of wind apparently ripped a piece of metal gate with the attached stop sign on it off of the gate itself on Esther's side. And this large piece of metal and stop sign flew right toward Esther, who was only a mere three feet away, albeit protected by the car. Some reports said that the gust ripped off a piece of the gate which flew into the side of the car, but others say that the gate swung shut with immense force, but either way, this piece of metal or the stop sign itself, went right through the passenger's door's frame and the window, and Esther was decapitated right next to her husband. She had no chance, even if she was able to see it coming. It just happened way too quickly, way too suddenly, and there's just no time to react. The force of the impact left the stop sign embedded into the side of the car's door. And there are pictures of the car afterward, um, just so the damage of the car, and it's incredible that wind actually caused a steel pole to cut through the metal door frame of a car and decapitate a person. The decapitation in the passenger seat literally drenched the entire front interior and Ludovic with blood. Ludovic said that he knew his wife was dead when, quote, he inhaled the copper-tinged smell of blood, turned to figure out that what it was and saw that she was dead, end quote. At that moment, the blood-soaked Ludovic jumped out of the car as it was slowly moving, and then he sort of observed the situation and noticed that the car was still rolling down the road, so he ran up, jumped in, and put it in park before finally being able to step back and making sense of everything. Ludovic and the family of Esther sued the park seeking $270 million in damages, arguing that the National Park was negligent and failed to properly secure the gate. And that case actually went to trial on December 6th of 2022 and ended on the 12th. But there hasn't been a final ruling in the award settlement at this time, or it hasn't been made public. But get this, man. The fucking U.S. attorney, Amanda Burnt, argued that the plaintiffs should be awarded some money, but not the $270 million that they originally asked for, but rather $22,508 for funeral expenses, and $5,000 for Ludovic's therapy expenses. Wow. Holy shirt, dude. Like, that is just... That is just so messed up, dude. She is so heartless. Amanda Burnt, you said? More like Amanda Burnt, Ludovic, and Esther's family. What a bitch. Yeah, bro. And that's the U.S. attorney, for Christ's sakes. Just another example of government officials being government officials. Like, you have to be pretty damn heartless and hollow to be in a high government position like that. And they're like, oh, yeah, here's $22,000... Yeah, for, I mean, here's these newlyweds. 
They go through the national park to have a good time. They're not doing anything wrong. This thing blows off in a freak accident and decapitates the person. Like, at least toss the guy a million. You know what I mean? Yeah, dude. Like, just toss him a million dollars. It's just, yeah. it's beyond me. I mean, yeah, 270, that's a high figure. Um, it's well, you always pop- shoot high. And I mean, then, you always you know, shoot you high. Yeah, but there's really no pride. I mean, you know, they're newlyweds. This poor girl. Right. That's just heartless, dude. I'm not at all yeah. surprised by that, though. That surprises me. Nuns. Nuns. And Amanda Burns, she said this: the amount, the $22,508, takes into account Esther's education and earning history at the time of her death. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, stating that it would cover her loss of financial earnings. Absolutely oh, terrible. Absolutely terrible. So there was another case back in the 1980s when a man named Randy Rost was sitting in the back of a camper that was attached onto the back of a truck. You know what kind of camper I'm talking about, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, it's kind of like a sort of like a gooseneck camper. No, no, no. It's one of the ones that just sit on the back of a pickup truck. Yeah, on the, on the bed. Right. Oh, oh. Like I see what you mean. Like the whole setup is tucked in on the the actual bed itself, and yeah, I was yeah. thinking it was it has like, like the metal arm hooking down. But no, I know what you mean. Yeah, nope. I know what you mean. Yeah, and it has like a little extension part that goes yep. over the top bed yep. of the truck. Yep. Yes, sir. So he was chilling in the camper, this Randy Rost, and someone else was driving the truck. And it's at night, and they were traveling down a dark and winding road in Stanislaw National Forest. I think that's how you pronounce it, Stanislaw. And the road is more narrow because of the thick foliage that was going on both sides of the road, making it all the more difficult to navigate. And similar to our last story, there was a gate, but this gate, it was painted dark green and was partially hidden by the forest flora. And it had no warning signs or markers, and it was just located. It was located on the curve of the road, and its crossbar was extended directly into oncoming traffic. So, as the camper drove around that corner, the crossbar crashed right through the front of the passenger side, sort of through the passenger side window by the mirror, and went through the back of the truck, through the metal camper shell and impaled Randy Ross directly through his chest. And the truck didn't stop immediately because it all happened so quick, right? And so the the truck continued going. So with Randy impaled on the gate and the truck continuing to go, he then crashed through the back of the metal camper, which only forced his body to be pierced further onto the pole. Oh, man. Ugh, can you imagine? No. And the truck stopped shortly afterward once the driver realized that something just happened, you know? But there Randy was, impaled and hanging by this pole, slowly realizing the gravity of the situation. It's not that bad. Well, I'm not saying I'd like to build a summer home here, but the trees are actually quite lovely. <laughs> he didn't die, though, miraculously. And it was eventually rescued. I don't know how long he was stuck on the pole there. Oh, but think about man, that's so crazy, dude. Yeah, and think about this. This happens to you, right? You're impaled by this pole. You have no idea what happened, but you find, okay, you're impaled by a pole now. You're hanging there by it. It's just you and your buddy, and your buddy has to go get help now. So you're left impaled on this pole at night, all alone in the dark, in the thick, bushy, damp, moist forest. You're bleeding. Animals know when prey is injured because they can smell blood. I mean, bears can smell blood up to 20 miles away. So you're left alone, impaled by this damn pole. Your friend goes to get help. That's sketchy. Just, yeah, dude. I can't even. It's so terrible. 
and it would have been even worse if those animals actually like came up to him and started eating him and there's nothing he could do yeah like the last thing you need i mean this guy's just turned into a human flag and then like yeah. the next thing you see is our little glowing eyes starting to appear Ooh, scary. you know just ugh, I, oh man i mean he probably didn't care he had a pole through him and that's probably mainly <laughs> yeah. that's probably just mainly what he was probably mainly what he was focused on at that point in time, it was just like sitting there in disbelief, like just hanging. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I can't even imagine, dude. And your buddy's like, "Just hang on, bro. I'll be right back. I'll be right back." And he stops oh. at a couple bars to get some drinks. Yeah, yeah. Just like you know, stops to get a drink of water, take a piss. You know, <laughs> buddy's just hanging there. <laughs> so Randy Ross, you know, he was eventually rescued, and after a long, drawn-out lawsuit against the United States of America. Randy Rost was awarded roughly $647,532.1980s oh, wow. money, okay. which in today's dollars would be equivalent to about $1.8 million, roughly. See, that's what they should have given that other guy. I mean, if not more. Yeah. You know, his Ludovic, wife yeah. was literally decapitated. Like, this guy survived. He was the the plaintiff and survived. You know, they had experienced the accident, lived through it. This other guy lived through it, but his partner did not. Like, he'll never have that partner for the rest of his life. And they just want to toss him, like, 22 grand in today's dollars? Like, <laughs> today's come dollars, on, yeah. man. Oh, man. Sorry to go back to that. So all that's pretty crazy, right? So now, we've been on dry land for a while. Let's leave terra firma and dive into some deep, rhythmic, powerful, undulating, glistening, wet, rough waters. We've all heard about breathing oxygen in tanks carried on our backs while diving. But have you heard of liquid breathing? Uh, yeah, dude. That's breathing in an oxygen-rich liquid solution, right? It's literally breathing a non-compressible liquid, which was actually first developed as part of the Manhattan Project during the Second World War called perfluorocarbon, or PFC for short. PFC is colorless and is composed of carbon and fluorine, which when combined makes the strongest covalent bonds in nature. PFC is unreactive and biologically inert, just a purely neutral substance. So check this shit out. In 1966, after years of many different scientists experimenting with and perfecting the use of a liquid oxygen, which was mainly an oxygenated saline solution, American researchers Leyland Clark and Frank Golan knew that animals, specifically rats, had been able to live up to 30 minutes while completely submerged in such a saline solution. Golan and Clark decided to add this already somewhat successful saline solution with perfluorocarbon. They first tried their experiment on dogs, which worked surprisingly well. And it's important to remember that scientists had been trying to figure out a way to breathe liquid since the First World War, and at this point, after so many breakthroughs, the entire aim had not changed. But as far as we know, a human had not been used as a guinea pig up until this point. But again, human experimentation was, and still is, kept hidden from the public eye. In fact, Congress's first legislation to protect the rights and welfare of human subjects was the National Research Act of 1974. Did you hear that? 1974. And that only came after the public did find out about widespread human experimentation by the government, which had been going on for many years. Dude, we need to do a story on human experimentation, bro. We will be doing probably a three or four parter and also single episodes on specific cases for sure. Excellent. So in the early 1970s, after three 
more years of perfecting their breathable liquid solution, the two scientists conducted their newest experiments using the first known human test subject. The test subject was a man named Francis Folasik, who was a U.S. Navy diver and volunteered his services. Ah, yes. Rather than be slipped some LSD without your knowledge and have a handful of weird men in suits following you around taking notes. Hmm, yes. He appears to have no idea what is happening to him. He's now naked and curled in the fetal position. Oh! Uh-oh. He's now rolling himself over and over while chanting that he is a baby tire. Uh-oh. Bob, Bob, watch out. He's gonna roll into you. <laughs> he was given a small local anesthetic to help with the intubation, which is inserting a tube down one's throat into the trachea. Francis was then given the solution. He was able to breathe the liquid solution, but I couldn't find any information on how long he was breathing it. Ultimately, he survived, but he developed pneumonia as the doctors struggled to drain the fluid from his lungs. He went on to give lectures about his experience, and at one of those lectures, there was a certain 17-year-old boy who happened to be attending. Scott, take an educated guess at who this teenager was. Mmm... I, since we're talking about water things, I'm going to go with James Cameron. I'll give you some clues. It's a he, and he is a director. He directed Exogenesis, which is about a woman and an engineered man who are sent in a gigantic sentient starship to search space for a place to start a new life cycle. Raj decides to take a look around the ship. He comes across a gigantic robot cleaner. Combat ensues. He also directed True Lies. So your life's in the crapper. So your wife's banging a used car salesman. It's humiliating, I know, but God damn it, take it like a man. Terminator. There's a high probability. He took a submarine 35,787 feet down into the deepest part of Mariana Trench. No guesses? He directed Titanic. Daddy, it's a ship. You're right. Yeah, I'm still going to go with James Cameron. <laughs> My initial guess. <laughs> Many years later, this then 17-year-old would write a screenplay for a blockbuster movie titled The Abyss. Ah, uh, yes. yes. That 17-year-old was James Cameron. Ding, 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 ding! Woo! What do I win, man? Do I get $22,000 for funeral expenses or what? You can come back next week and help host another show. <laughs> oh, that's more of a curse <laughs> than, a, than a prize. Oh, but yeah, oh, never mind. Oh, I'm grateful. Thank you to all of you who helped me get to this moment. I'd like to thank my publicist, who is non-existent, and my supportive family, who is also non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Family, don't kill me. No, seriously, don't kill me. Don't kill him, please. I need him here. <laughs> so, dude, In the Abyss. All right, the movie is a fantastic movie to begin with. Great movie. Is... Always loved yeah. The Abyss. Great movie. Loved it. There's a scene where they put, and you might remember this, they put a very real rat into a cage and then put that cage into a large dish of actual perfluorocarbon. Yes, yes, sir. And the rat actually breathes it in. It's a pretty incredible scene. Yeah. So in, in the movie, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the scientists doing it are showing divorced, middle-aged man heartthrob and all-around good actor Ed Harris what he will need to do so that he can dive very deep into the ocean without having to use an oxygen tank. Now, the whole point of scientists wanting to develop a way for humans to be able to breathe a liquid solution was so that they could dive into really great depths, right? And to also avoid getting Kaisan sickness, or better known as decompression sickness, or the bends, in its most general layman's term. Scott, have you ever had the bends? I can't say I've uh, ever had the bends, but I can tell you that my body does bend. Okay, to be honest, 
I only get the bends when my wife is doing the delicate archie. Oh, zinger. Got you, bro. Well, the bends <laughs> is defined as an illness or disorder and occurs when nitrogen saturates the blood and tissues while the body is under high pressure. And if the pressure is decreased too quickly, i.e. a diver going straight to the surface of the water from a great depth, there is a rapid release of nitrogen gas, which causes bubbles to quickly form within the blood and tissue. And if the nitrogen isn't able to dissolve within the blood and tissue, the very painful result is getting the bends. And this is why divers slowly come to the surface, often stopping at intervals for minutes at a time just to allow the nitrogen to dissolve from their blood. And if one is so unfortunate enough to get the bends, they are likely to feel unusual fatigue, intense pain in the joints, dizziness, confusion, ringing in the ears, vertigo, numbness, shortness of breath, paralysis, and even death. I actually have a couple of sides on the subject of the bends. I was reading the history of building the Brooklyn Bridge, and there's lots of accounts of when they were building the footings in the river. I mean, they didn't know these kinds of things back then. So many people got the bends. They were down in these, like, metal containers underneath, like, the pressure of the water. These people would be, like, shuttled down there. I forget how they got down there. I mean, it's, I'm sorry for the incomplete history lesson. But essentially, they were under in these metal things doing this work underneath the water. All this, like, intense banging. And they're down there for hours. And the people would come up, and some of them would just, like immediately fade out and start seizing and having seizures and nobody knew what was going on and they're like what is happening like they just didn't know like they didn't have that knowledge and then my other aside is i was just listening to an account of a guy who's part of this team of divers living in an underwater essentially like a large metal tank and you know like they've they stayed down there for days at a time you can't go back to the surface if that's the case for that exact reason because you'll get the right. bends. But he was talking about how to use the restroom since you obviously don't have any kind of portable system down there. You take this bell down and you go into this like underwater thing that has essentially an air bubble under it. You pop your head up in this air bubble and you just pull your diver suit and you do your business. But fish get used to that. And so when you do that, Suddenly you get swarmed by all these fish that are just like trying to feed, which is pretty gross. And he said the scariest thing he ever saw was he turned around to go back up to the surface and he just saw this eye staring at him that was about the size of a saucer, you know, after he had done one of these bathroom trips. And it was a giant Goliath grouper down there, like checking out Whoa. what he was up to literally inches from him. And he screamed and he came back up so quickly into the little dive bubble like tank thing they have screaming and everyone thought he got bit by a shark or something and he's like no no i just saw this crazy fish but i mean it was nighttime and you just see this huge eye did you turn around and it's right there like can you even imagine bro the ocean scares me man it's so scary ocean scares me i've swam in the ocean and i always just felt so uneasy it was off the coast of like california or oregon or something I was like 14, my parents and I, or my family, we were taking a road trip, and we stopped somewhere along the coast, and we ended up hiking down to the beach, and it wasn't an area for people to be swimming. It was not a designated beach. We didn't know this at the time, um, but you know, we were like, oh, let's just swim here, you know, and the water was pretty rough, and we later found out, like later that day, that where we were swimming is 
a big shark infestation where they they breed. No way. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. And so like I, you know, went out a little bit and the waves are pretty strong. They could easily pull you out. And so I was like kind of scared. We were right there where all these sharks were fucking breeding, bro. <laughs> Ugh. I don't like the ocean. I do not like the ocean. It's somewhere where humans were not meant to to go, and yet we go there. We love it for some reason. It's we like do. the unknown, you know. We had because we don't even know what the hell is happening in the ocean. Yeah, the it's part. true. They always say like the most popular quote is, "We know more about the surface of Mars than we do about what's going on underneath yeah. our oceans." So now let's introduce a man named Nicholas Mavoli. Mavoli was an accomplished American world record-setting freediver. And on November 15th of 2013, he attempted to break yet another record. His goal was to reach 315 feet on a single breath. Once he reached about 260 feet, he apparently suffered a minor upper respiratory squeeze. Basically, you know, some minor lung damage. And I guess at about 100 feet down, your lungs are around the size of a quarter. And if that's correct, then at 260 feet down, I'm assuming your lungs would be the width of a pencil. Right? Because the deeper you go, the more pressure, right? Man, that's insane, dog. But he turned back and made it to the surface and seemed to be perfectly fine, so he called it a day and took a little time off. And so two days later, he attempted another dive. And at about 223 feet down, which is 37 feet shorter than his previous dive, he stalled, appearing to want to return to the surface. But he changed his mind and continued with his descent, which was the worst mistake he could have made. His fellow divers and others familiar with the dangers of these types of dives said that they all shook their heads and cringed because they knew that it was not a good idea to do what he was doing. They knew that he didn't have fins on or any backup oxygen tanks, so they just feared the worst. So Mavoli, he only made it roughly another 14 feet down before jetting back to the surface. And Mavoli was underwater for 3 minutes and 38 seconds on a single breath, which I can hold my breath for like a minute. Yeah, and... maybe a minute. Same. <laughs> yeah, Same. it's pretty bad. He pulled his goggles off and gave an okay to everyone. But as protocol, I guess he was supposed to officially say, I am okay. So as he was attempting to say those words, his speech just became slurred and he became silent and his eyes widened and became very distant. At that point, he fell backward into the ocean, having lost consciousness. And this, of course, losing consciousness isn't unusual as you're dealing with a lack of oxygen while you're engaged in physical exertion. Pretty standard. So those around him thought nothing of it and just sort of thought that he was, you know, getting a great jab at everyone. Oh, he's so good at that. He always been a greatest prankster. Haha. Look at him there, not breathing and stuff. Just hilarious. Gets me every time. <laughs> no, the situation was grim and they took it as such. They immediately got him onto a platform and began resuscitation, but blood starting to literally pour out of his mouth and nose and began to puddle around him. For 90 minutes, they tried to save him. He was given shots of adrenaline to help, but nothing worked, and he was pronounced dead. But that wasn't even a story that I was going to tell, but at some point as I was researching the story that I'm about to tell, I remembered a picture that I had seen of Mavoli as he surfaced, and you could, you could look at this all over the internet, and it shows the moment when his eyes were that wide and distant. And he looked scared, but confused at the same time, and then knowing the backstory to it just makes it all the more frightening. So I figured I'd throw it here, because it kind of fits. Let's talk a little bit about what is known as the Biford Dolphin Accident or Incident or whatever people want to call it. But before we dive into the depths of the story, 
we first need to skim the surface and get an idea of what saturation diving is. The following comes from HowStuffWorks.com. Saturation diving is based on the principle that the pressure of the dissolved gas in the blood and tissues is the same as that of the gas in the lungs. Basically, a diver goes down to a depth, perhaps 300 feet, and remains there until no more gas can dissolve in the tissues. The tissues are saturated with nitrogen. Once the saturation point has been reached, the time required for decompression will be the same, no matter how much longer the diver stays at that depth, whether it be a minute, an hour, a day, or even a week. This principle has been used for divers who live and work in undersea habitats. And undersea habitats is where we will be sinking to for this next story. <laughs> a little side note. Saturation divers make up to around $200,000 each year. Woo! Scott, take a guess at how many saturation divers die each year on average. I'm going to say two. Well, our records are only from the U.S. and Canada. So between the superpower Canada and the third world U.S., on average, about 80 saturation divers die each year. Oh, man, I was way off. <laughs> uh, 78 off, yeah. Yeah. So the Biford Dolphin was a semi-submersible, column-stabilized oil drilling rig. And a little history in this fucking thing. It started operating in 1974 and drilled for many different companies in the North Sea. At the time, it was equipped with state-of-the-art technology. Just a couple years after it began operating, we would see the first human casualties. The Byford Dolphin ran aground while being moved from an oil location back to the port of Bergen. Every crew member made it safely to lifeboats, but the seas were very, very rough. Many fell overboard, resulting in six deaths. Now, let's do a little doggy paddle on over to November 5th, 1983. So how this thing is set up is like this. There are two main chambers used as sleeping quarters, one on each side of a sort of foyer chamber where you would prepare to enter into the diving bell attached beneath. And on one side of one of the main sleeping quarters is an escape chamber. The diving bell is where the divers can exit the habitation and go down to the sea floor wherever they need to go. The diving bell below is attached to the chambers above by clamps. These clamps are operated by divers to allow pressurization in each chamber and there were a very precise series of steps that needed to be followed when opening and closing the diving bell access. It was vital that the pressure in each chamber was kept in perfect balance. Or else. else, else, else a total of else. six men were in the Biford Dolphin tending to their duties on this day. Two men were in chamber one, literally sleeping in their Grundies. Two other divers were apparently watching over the clamps and pressurization from outside the Dolphin, according to the official diagram. Then there was Bjorn Bergerson and Truls Hellevik. These two were apparently leaving the area of the diving bell as they had just come up from the depths and going toward chamber two through the foyer chamber. I believe they were in the foyer chamber area when the inexplicable suddenly occurred without giving anyone a chance to comprehend their dire situation. There was a critical decompression malfunction. Later, the medical examiner said that, yeah, their deaths were near instant, but that moment of realization was definitely not painless. Due to the differences of pressure in each compartment, the explosive decompression caused the blood of at least three of the four divers that were inside the main chambers to basically flash boil right where they were. And I was trying so hard to find out exactly what would happen to a body in such a decompression, because everybody wants to know, do we explode? Or is everything inside of us just sucked out of every hole, leaving a crumpled skin suit? We all want to know, right? 
for a long time, I could not find a damned thing on the forensics of it. And then I came upon a PDF of the actual accident, which is a detailed report from the doctors who investigated the deaths. This report included actual photographs of the chambers and of each victim's body exactly where they were when this event unfolded, literally in the blink of an eye. Everyone except for Truls Helvig. He had to be searched for and put back together. But he didn't explode like some may wonder. The bodies of these victims showed large amounts of gas within the blood vessels. There were hemorrhages all over the soft tissues. Fat was found in the arteries of the heart and veins, which was mixed with gas bubbles. And the medical professionals said it looked like sizzling buttered on a frying pan. The damages are all internal. Unless you just so happen to be near a small opening and get sucked through said opening, much like Truls Helvick was. Truls Helvick, which is a sweet fucking name, was forced through a partially open door roughly 24 inches long and in the shape of a very thin crescent moon. No, I hate to be indecent, but Coop, was it a waning crescent or a waxing crescent? Uh, you know, I would speculate by seeing the photos, I would say it was a waxing crescent. <laughs> oh, all right. The door was exactly two feet in circumference. It's one of those small round doors you would expect to see in like a submarine movie, which seals off each compartment as you go through it. But these doors didn't swing open on hinges like a regular door. These doors would be pulled out. And then, you know, away from the actual opening itself a few inches and then slid over on a sort of like guide railing or something. So this door was only slightly open because Helovic was in the middle of closing it. He just had a few more inches to close. But man, if he had closed it any more than he was able to, it would have been a whole lot messier. So what follows is a little bit about the state of his body. The top of his skull and his brain were missing. His scalp with long blonde hair was found nearby. Only the base of the skull was intact. Many splintered fragments of bone were spread about. His face was found completely removed from his head and was essentially a mask. His left upper arm was separated just below the shoulder joint. His right arm was just shredded to pieces but still attached to the body. Both hands were separated as were the forearms. His right thigh, leg, and foot were gone. But the right knee joint itself was located. The left thigh was removed just above the hip joint. His pelvis was cut into three distinct pieces. On one of these parts, there was a small fragment of his small intestine attached. This report said that his penis was present, but it was invaginated, meaning that it was turned inside out or folded back on itself to form a cavity or pouch. His abdomen and back had been cut just above the pelvis and below the sternum and was as mangled as one could imagine. In fact, the largest, most intact piece of him was probably his chest area, but it was only the skin that was left in the shape of like a wife beater. Either that or his left calf was sort of intact. So he literally was just chopped to many, 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 many little pieces. I can't. Being sucked, being sucked to that little crack. Even imagine. I hope it was his head first so he could just die instantly so he didn't uh. have to feel the rest of it. You know? Yeah, there's no way of telling, man. Anyway, his abdomen was basically a sack, as they put it. Looking from above, you could look, as they said, quote, look down through the larynx, end quote. Bob is over there like, Hey, uh, Chuck. Chuck, dude, you should come back here and look at this shit, dude. You can see right down through his larynx, dude. Well, I'll be damned. 
Hey, Steve, dude. Hey, come look at us, man. You ain't ever seen nothing like this, dude. Obviously, all of his internal organs had been expelled and spread about the interior of the room, all but his trachea. Most of his ribs were scattered about as well. Body parts were found 30 feet away from the opening, and the investigators said that the decompression was so sudden and intense that some of Helovic's organs had no damage at all, as if dissected out of the body. After a summary overview, it was theorized by the Norwegian government, because that's where they were in Norwegian waters, that one of the divers in charge of the pressurization and clamps was at fault for releasing the diving bell before its pressure could be increased and before sealing chamber one from the foyer chamber. This then caused an instantaneous decompression which killed all four divers within the foyer and main chambers and also caused the diving bell below to shoot off and strike the two divers outside of the Biper Dolphin, killing one and seriously injuring the other. So there's only one survivor of this whole thing. But the families weren't having the government's explanation, and rightfully so. Of course, the government would avoid all responsibility and place it directly on those who died in the tragic accident. But a coalition called the North Sea Divers Alliance was formed to help protect divers, specifically North Sea divers. And in 2008, after 26 years of fighting, the Biford Dolphin accident was finally determined to be due to faulty equipment, noting the clamps as being the most likely cause. Oh man, so they tried to do it right and the equipment... Yeah. Failed, bro. No, they were just doing their job, doing oh everything correctly. Oh my and... gosh. That is so messed up, dude. So many reasons why I would never want to work in that sort of job. Oh, absolutely. Anywhere where you're undersea, like depending on equipment, crushing pressures, you know, I know there's jobs yeah, no, that need you. to be done, but I'm good, man. All you know, even like the pr the the pay is great, man. But it's like the risk versus reward. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, absolutely. There's people that always want to get rich quick, and they're you know trades guys, and they're like, oh man, I want to be a underwater welder, you know, because they get paid, yeah. you know, over a hundred dollars an hour or whatever it is. But like, you're extremely likely to die and get electrocuted or you know whatever it is. Just like, dude, yeah, no thanks, man. No. I want to be on solid ground, like, even just being on solid ground is dangerous, man. Like, we can't, we're not safe anywhere, man. Humans are too frail. Yeah, I mean, there's we're people that work with chemicals all day, you know, or people that work around loud sounds all day, or people that work in, like, even paint booths. I mean, you you could wear, like, good masks, but you're still getting exposed to harmful. All the chemicals. Yeah, dude, just day in and day out, I mean. Well, you know, let's. You, you want to highlight some current topics in the news? Yeah, I'm glad you said something. I'm going to tell everybody about uh, the Paul Pelosi hammer attack. Oh, uh, pretty sweet shit. name, right? Apparently, you got him pretty good at least once in the video. We can see that Polly, old Polly, is holding Polly. a clear cup with a liquid in it, and he appears to be fairly mm -hmm. intoxicated as he stands next to yeah. David Wayne DePap, who holds a hammer in his right hand. Polly is also gripping the hammer, just above where DePap is holding it, clearly in a defensive manner. The cops tell DePap to drop the hammer, which is when Polly seems to step backward, loses his grip of the hammer, and that is when DePap swings with deadly intent at least once at Polly's head. The cops rush, we don't see much after that, but you can tell that Polly is on the floor. It fucked him up pretty good. I think he got a <laughs> fractured skull. Yeah, uh, it definitely messed him up bad 
I mean, dude comes at you with a hammer. Like, come on. You know? What else we got? I think we have a Air Force general warns of war with China in 2025 and tells his officers to get ready. So this general, he, he says that his gut tells him that because both Taiwan and the U.S. will have elections taking place in 2024, that they will be occupied and distracted, which will leave Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, the perfect opportunity to strike. The general is dead serious about this and has sent memos to other commanders telling them to prepare their men for war. And in March of this year, there will be a hearing of sorts to determine the threat risk and likelihood of an attack. Oh, man. That's well, something. that'll be something great to think about. And in the meantime, we can busy ourselves with the uh, announcement that the Trumpster is making a second bid at the presidency. No way. Yes, sir, dude. Is he? Is he? Are you going to vote for him? Um, I'm not gonna tell you what I, what my vote's gonna be, Coop, and I'll just yeah, I let guess you. So. <laughs> I'll just let you figure it out, man. I guess we'll see, huh? Won't we on election day? I guess I'm gonna follow <laughs> you into the booth. The Brago from Merlago, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love the name. <laughs> Did you want to talk about this new case about Tyree? Tyree. Yeah, you know we should definitely. Tyree Nichols was stopped during a traffic stop on January seventh, twenty twenty three. Nichols ran from officers who gave chase. They knocked him to the ground where they had him on his back. His arms were stretched out right. And two, two officers just started throwing punches with uh, both their fists at his face. Jesus. And right after that, the cop whose body cam footage we have began pepper spraying him. My cop God. with the camera leaves the area to breathe. So you know it was bad. Um, but you can hear the other right. cops yelling at Nichols to show him their hands. The entire time, his hands are very clearly visible. I think they're just pissed that he tried to run. Uh, at, at this point, the police had... There's just like a five-on-one type deal. And then you see okay. one of them just throwing straight haymakers at this dude's face while he's on the My ground. God, Can't dude. defend himself. He's been pepper sprayed. They're throwing haymakers to the others. Stand him up. Put his hands behind his back. The cop with the camera turns and walks away, so you can't really see the beating happening. But you hear him in of pain. Course. Like Clearly, the guy's in pain. He's moaning, and he's the moans are becoming more faint. He's losing consciousness. The cop with the camera walks back over, and you just see multiple other police officers run up to where they now have Nichols on the ground. And the footage changes to a stationary camera, and so you can see the entire scene kind of from afar. They try to sit him up, but he only collapses. They drag him and lean him against the car. One of the officers walks back around. He looks like he's run a marathon, you know, because they've been putting so much effort into this. And or is he just out of breath because he's throwing fucking? That's what I mean. Yeah, time. I mean, like you can tell, like you know, they're they're just out of breath because they felt the need to like use that much aggressive energy towards this individual. My God! And dude. the others are just standing around talking. So I mean, what we see is the camera changes back to the body camera, and you can see Nichols sitting up against the car. It's been about nine minutes since they first gave chase. And then you see the paramedics arrive. Nichols falls over onto his left side. And then there are just various faces of various officers involved. Some people smiling. Like, they don't think it's a big deal. Wow. And then you see the officer uh, appear, uh, the one who looks like he's run a marathon. And uh, one of the other main officers who was involved in the physical assaulting of Nichols. And they're pretending that they were hit first by this guy who was on the mm. ground. And they pepper sprayed right. him. 
Yeah. And then um, a lot of minutes go by, and you see Nichols laying on the ground, and then the body cam cop just just walks away. So now the information that we have, you know, in lieu of all this, is we know that Tyree Nichols was beat to death, and at least five now former Memphis police officers have been charged with his death. Uh, Tadarius Bean, Demetrius Haley, Emmett Martin III, Desmond Mills Jr., and Justin Smith have all been charged with second-degree murder and other crimes, including aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression. And, of course, Mr. Nichols, we know, died three days later, and an independent autopsy found that he died from kidney failure and cardiac arrest. Jesus Christ, man. They literally just beat him to they death, literally just huh? beat him to death for what seems like no reason i mean it is no reason and there's no reason for that no. to have continued i mean as it, long as it did I, I guess we don't know all the facts but as much as we know at this point whatever it was a traffic stop right and, right and he's he and ran he ran but he didn't he fire a weapon armed. at them yeah uh he, he didn't, didn't, didn't make he didn't threaten them in that way and they just kept i just it's just egos and trigger happy you know i know there wasn't a gun involved but these people are sometimes i feel like they're just trained to like just be ready for that fight you know throwing hands immediately dude it doesn't make sense though after everything we just it went doesn't through i know black lives matter and I all the know. riots and all that shit that still happened happening. and you have these guys still happening and they, they were there were five black police officers and apparently they were in a police gang they actually had a gang that they were in as police officers in that precinct. But, you know, you know it's good to talk world... about it. I know this is like a well-discussed story at this point, but, you know, we need awareness. You know, we right. need people hearing about these kinds of things. I know you can flip on the news and hear about it, but we're going to talk about it, too, because it needs to yeah. be talked about. Like, this kind of thing needs to stop happening. It needs to be discussed. And, I don't know, man, this is the world we live in, and it's an unfortunate and sad truth. For as progressive and cultured of a society that we are, or praise ourselves to be, and seeing how far we have come is nothing short of a sigh of relief and a metaphorical pat on the back for ourselves, but despite all of our human advancements in a once wealthy society and all of our behavioral sciences guiding us along our path through life with our learned morals and ethics, our shared values, not only as individuals, but as individuals who are capable of living together as a cultured society, it seems that all we do and all we have done to curb violence in our communities has done nothing but acted as a rudimentary band-aid, not meant to be used as a band-aid. I don't know if it's going to change, bro. I really don't. I think it's just human nature to be as we are. And when it when it becomes like a, a, a group mentality, you know, people by themselves are pretty intelligent. They can think for themselves, but you put them into a, into a group or a pack, the whole mentality changes. Yeah, and rare is the individual that goes against the majority. You know, right. especially in a situation like that, like how many body cams have we seen so far where one officer steps up to everyone else and goes, hey, 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 enough, enough. Like, stop that. I haven't seen one. I've never seen. I one. haven't seen a single one where one of the officers hasn't tried to put a stop to it. I think nope. that needs to be talked about, too, because yeah. who knows? Maybe they'd be laughed at. Maybe they would be ignored. But it, there has to be a point where somebody in a group you know, this is a group of officers doing this needs to be the one to say enough, guys, you know what's been happening lately. Enough. Knock it off. Quit it. Common sense. Stop Common it. Common fucking sense. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, maybe that's where it starts. Especially as a police officer. You're supposed to be there to protect. 
I know. But uh, it's just crazy, bro. With that said, people, be nice to one another. Feed each other. Any final thoughts, Scott? Well, that's going to be it, everyone, for today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed a little something different, a little mashup, if you will, of just strange events and strange happenings along with current events. And come back next week for another fun episode. Yeah, thank you, everyone, so much for tuning in. And do not forget to subscribe to the Paranautica Podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure to like and share and help us get our name out there. You can also email us, if you feel like, at paranautica at gmail.com. That's P-A-R-A-N-A-U-G-H-T-I-C-A at gmail.com. And let us know what stories you would like to hear. Thanks again, everyone. And until next week, make someone feel special. comes creeping For me, there ain't no sleeping What she sowed, she'll be reaping For she done me wrong I cried my heart out in Salt Lake City The day I heard the news She left me deep in my solitude With the Salt Lake City Blues Salt Lake City is renowned for its beauty. The snow-capped Wasatch Mountains are nearby. In 1929, the factory output was $43 million. The wholesale trade proper amounted to $71,510,573. Retail trade, $92 million. There's salt beds and farmland producing principally alfalfa, grain, sugar beets, and vegetables in the vicinity. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't care if I ever set foot there again in Salt Lake City. That town is a nemesis to me. Man, I cried my heart out in Salt Lake City. The day I heard the news She left me deep in my solitude With those blues